You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. Have you ever played a game where you try to find the common link between phrases or pictures? I'm guessing some of you have, perhaps many of you have, and if you haven't, I think you'll catch on really quickly here. So there are three pictures on the screen. The top left one is a map. You have North America and some other things there, and there's one country that's circled. You have a picture of broccoli on the bottom left. Thankfully, all the children left or we'd be hearing groans right now. And then a man playing golf on the right. What is the common factor or the unifying factor in these three photos? Ah, that was easy. They're all green, or they have a green in them, right? Uh, I think the golf green is the most healthy for you. But that's Greenland up there in the top left. Okay, now you get the hang of it. Here's another one. We have the Declaration of Independence. Underneath that is a postal service truck. And then on the far right is a kite. The unifying factor here, Benjamin Franklin, yes. All of our Living History Days people got it, so... Living history right here on Sunday morning. Benjamin Franklin, who was a signer of the Declaration, uh, discovered electricity, obviously, by flying a kite. Who knows if that's apocryphal or not. Uh, But then he was the first postmaster general of the United States. Here's one more. We have a baseball field on the left, an elephant on the top right, and a large rock on the bottom right. What's the common thing here in these three? Let me give you another round of hints. On the left is Coors Field. On the top right is the Denver Zoo. And on the bottom right is Red Rocks Amphitheater. These are all things to do in Denver. Yes, you got it. Okay? So, you say, that wasn't fair. There's a lot more commonality than that. Sure, sure, sure. But my point is well taken, I think. These, all of these pictures are different things that we could talk about. They're individual subjects that we could discuss, but there is a unifying factor when you put these three particular things together. Now, if we put broccoli on the screen with a kite and chorus field, I can't think of a connection. Maybe you can. But when you put the right three things together, there's a, there's a unifying factor to it. And that's kind of like our text this morning. Colossians 3, 15 through 17 has three separate commands. In fact, many people preach a whole sermon on each of these three things, or they dip into it and kind of pull out the principles from one. But we believe that that God didn't make a mistake when he inspired scripture through the Holy Spirit. And so these three commands, back to back to back, are not just out there randomly. There is a unifying factor in them. And the unifying factor is that in these three commands, there is a common flavor, and it's the flavor of a Christ-treasuring life. So what we're going to do today is is look at each one of these commands. They're very straightforward, but they're very helpful also. So there's nothing really surprising necessarily in the, the verses themselves, but underneath the surface, there is a link that connects the three of them together. And I want to encourage you to think with me and see if you can figure that out before I get to it later on. Now, as we look at the commands, we have to recognize that this is the end of Colossians 3, 1 through 17. This section of scripture has been talking to us and really commanding us to live the Christian life in a certain way. 
And it all stems out of our relationship to Jesus. In Colossians 3, 1 through 4, because we've been raised with Christ, what are we supposed to do? We are to then seek the things that are above. We are to set our affections, our heart, and our values, and what we love on heavenly things, not on the things of this earth. And so if we do that, and one of our footnotes for that has been this theme of treasuring Christ. That's kind of what we're talking about when we say treasure Christ. Set your affections on things above. If we do that, there's a whole bunch of correlating and, and flowing out of that commands For example, if we set our affections on things above, we're not going to engage in sexual immorality or anger or slander or destroying one another in the body of Christ because we put on the new man, we put on Christ. We're not the old person anymore. Instead, if we've set our affections on things above, we're going to put on Christ-like virtue. We're going to, as we talked about last week, forgive one another. And we're going to do these three things today because they're commands for us. Now, all three are what we would call Christocentric, meaning Christ at the center. In verse 15, the New King James has let the the peace of God. A lot of translations and a lot of the earliest manuscripts say peace of Christ. And, And I think that the peace of Christ is probably what's being referred to here because then verse 16 talks about the word of Christ and verse 17, the name of Jesus, the name of Christ. So this passage really revolves around treasuring Jesus. And these three things all promote unity in the body. If you look at the commands and the pronouns, they're all plural. So there is definitely personal application here. We're going to get into that, believe me. But all of these commands we have to remember are not just for me as an individual Christian. It's for us as a community to live together. And adding adding that component of our community at large makes it a whole lot more difficult. Because the first command is to be at peace with one another. The second one is to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. The third is for all of us to do everything in the name of Jesus. So let's look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you also were called in one body and be thankful. As we look into this verse The first word that jumps out to me, it probably jumps out to you, is peace, the peace of God or the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the word peace in Scripture was often used as a greeting. In the Old Testament, people would say peace to you and peace back to you. In the New Testament, many letters were written by Paul and the other apostles that began with peace. In fact, if you glance back to Colossians 1.1, you'll see that Paul begins by saying grace and peace to you. It was a common way of greeting because you were wishing peace on the recipient. But biblical peace is not just being still, like being at rest. And it's not just uh, a ceasefire of active fighting. There's a war going on in Europe. We pray for peace. And if there's a ceasefire, that's a great step in the right direction. But is that actually peace? No, that just means they're not actively shooting at one another. We want peace. We want all of the the weapons to be thrown down and the countries of Russia and Ukraine to live in harmony. And so when we have the word peace in Scripture, it's more than just being still. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. You've probably heard that word before, shalom. And it speaks to the permanent rest that God provides 
because all things have been set right in the world. Do you long for that? I do. <laughs> I was talking in Sunday school this morning that this past week, it just there's so many things that are just plaguing us and weighing heavy on us with temptation and trials, and we just long for that day when God will set everything right in the world and all of creation will be at rest and whole and flourishing. That's shalom. That's peace. But that peace can't be brought about between us and God without Jesus. Because our sin has caused division to come. Our sin is a rebellion against God. We are hostile to him. And back in Colossians 1, we we actually discovered this in verses 20 through 23. That we as human beings who have sinned are not at peace with God. We are not friends with God or even neutral toward God. We are his sworn enemies. And so to get into heaven, to have eternal life, to experience the, the flourishing shalom of God, we have to have a mediator, and that is Jesus. Colossians 1.20 says, by him, by Jesus, he will reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How can he do this? Because he's made peace through the blood of the cross. The only way that peace comes to a human being is through Jesus. You see, final peace that we've been mentioning here a moment ago, final rest comes when the Prince of Peace returns from heaven to set up his eternal kingdom. That's when our rest will begin. But there is a relational peace that needs to be enjoyed now for us to be rightly related to God. And that's the the beauty of the gospel, is that through Jesus, we go from hostile against God to forgiven. We go from enemies to children. Not just, oh, we're going to not fight anymore. We go from one side against him to his own family. Why? Because Jesus shed his blood on the cross to make peace with God. And if you've never accepted that peace, God isn't just looking at you and saying, oh, well, maybe your sins will be weighed in the balances and you're a pretty good guy, come on in. No, you're an enemy of God, hostile to him, estranged from him and alienated. And the only way to get peace with God is by humbling yourself to receive the gift of Jesus. And if you've never done that, I invite you to do that today. And for those of us who have received Jesus as Savior, we now have a gospel truth. There is an anchor for our souls driven through the the risks of Christ. Having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we now have peace with God. We have it. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to wonder about it. We have peace with God. It's a gospel fact. And so what Paul is commanding us here to do is to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace that we enjoy from God is now to to be the controlling factor in all of our lives. And this seems like it should be a self-evident principle, right? But the fact of the matter, from our experience, is that we often are not at peace in our hearts. We often lack peace Something troubling comes up. Some news disturbs us and our heart starts storming. 
we're not at peace. We're not at rest. For us to let the peace that we possess rule our hearts, we have to be ruled by our memory of the gospel. Because inner peace comes as we believe the truth, as we believe the gospel, and keep our hearts focused on Christ. Because even in the storms of life then, we can experience peace. You remember what happened to Peter when he walked on the water? He was really bold and kind of impulsive, and he got rewarded for it. So he stepped out of the boat in this middle of a hurricane, and he's walking on the water to Jesus. And as long as he did something, he was okay. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, everything was fine. But then he started looking around. He saw the waves, how they were big, and the effects of the wind And he started to sink. And that's a wonderful metaphor, I think, for our Christian experience. That as long as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, there's a storm blowing around us. But there's peace on the inside. It is possible to go through life with its ups and its downs, with peace in our hearts. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace, in shalom, shalom, whose mind is stayed on God because he trusts in you, God. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when anxious situations come up and we obey this verse and we give them to the Lord in prayer, what happens? The result is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. That in the midst of chaotic circumstances, we can have unexplainable peace. Have you ever experienced that? That there, that there are, are things happening all around us, we say, there's no way I should be this calm. But the, the unexplainable peace of God comes to flood our hearts. So peace can flood your heart as a believer in Jesus. And then as I mentioned a moment ago, this peace is to rule in our hearts, plural. So let's expand our our focus now and talk about our relationships with one another. These relationships, as you look left and right and backwards and forwards, are supposed to be characterized by peace. That means we're not to be fighting one another. We're not to be at war with one another. That when frictions happen and conflict arises, we work together toward peace. And this comes on the heels of verses 13 and 14, right? You remember what's in verse 13? It's forgiveness. It's bearing with one another. Why do we forgive? Why do we put up with the oddities of one another in love? Because we're pursuing peace. And when we pursue peace now, we're getting a foreshadow, a foretaste of what heaven will give to us. When we don't have to look at one another and start feeling a little bit anxious or grumpy or, "Eh, I don't want to see that person. No. In that day, we'll be perfect and we'll actually enjoy all of each other. Isn't that going to be great? Because though we want to do that now, sin messes things up. And so as the church, the people of God, we are called to live in peace with one another, to let it be the ruling factor in our hearts. And the reason we let peace rule in our relationships is explained in the next phrase, in verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one 
body. When God called us unto salvation, he called us to peace. Because we don't have peace with God and then conflict with others. Just like last week we talked about forgiveness is forgiving even as God forgave us. We don't receive God's forgiveness and then withhold it from other people. We don't receive the peace of God now without passing it on, without living in peace with others. And there's a lot of talk in our world about we need to be at peace and, you know, peace in the Middle East and these sorts of things. But the the scriptures are very clear. Humans can pursue peace and we ought to because that's the way God created us. But the only lasting peace that we can ever experience is found when we are rightly related to our Savior and our Creator. And at salvation, we were called to be part of Christ's body. And this body metaphor has come up several times. In fact, I, it, it just struck me again as I was studying this week that, wow, here's another reference to the body of Jesus. And there's like eight or nine passages in Colossians that talk about the body. This is a, a really an important metaphor in Paul's mind for this church. And when we think about peace in the body, we, we remember that salvation is not just about my individual destiny. I'm united to other people as well because Jesus is our head and I am just one member, one part of the body. If your body wars against one another, you go to the hospital because something is sick or something is wrong in your blood or in your digestive system or in your, in your brain. You see, the body only functions well and flourishes when all the members are at peace with one another. And that's the same thing that Paul is calling us to think about here. That if our church is going to be a unified church under our head, Jesus, we all have to work to be at peace with one another. And sometimes that means we're going to have to practice grace and love and forgiveness We might have to go out of our way to to try to reconcile with some other people. But that's the reason. When we're united to Christ at salvation, we're actually united to a whole bunch of other people. Are you a peace-creating person then? When you walk in the room, does peace follow or does conflict and chaos tend to, to trail after you? A couple weeks ago, uh, two of our boys were playing together very sweetly first thing in the morning. They were like reading a book or something, playing with their stuffed animals. And the third young man comes down the stairs and immediately there is conflict. And I'm not giving names intentionally to protect the guilty. <laughs> and I'm in the kitchen, I think, I think it was a Monday morning, so I think we were making pancakes and it was like, hey, they were playing just fine. Don't mess them up. When that son of mine walked into the room, chaos ensued because he wanted things and he wanted to get it in his own way. And I wonder how many of us would be described in that way. That when we walk into a room, when we walk into a situation, harmony does not follow because we're self-centered and we want things and we're willing to ruffle some feathers to get what we want. 1 Peter 3.11 calls us to seek peace and pursue it. And that means that we have to promote peace without sacrificing principle. 
We don't give up what we believe in the name of peace, but we pursue peace. And perhaps that thought of living in harmony and unity with other believers doesn't make you excited because you realize that's gotta be really hard. It's like Paul anticipated that because at the end of verse 15, he gives another command that doesn't really seem to connect. He says, and be thankful. Oh yeah, yeah, you need to be at peace with one another and you gotta be happy about it. Be thankful. Thankful people are peace-filled people. Is that a surprising connection for you? I admit, that was a surprise to me. I I studied this out for a while and, and thought, why did he tack on those two or three words? Why did he have to say, after calling us to pursue peace, why did he have to say, be thankful? Thankfulness fosters peace both in our hearts, which then spills out into our relationships. And I think that Paul adds it on here for a couple of reasons. First, because thankful people have the right posture in life. They have the right manner of life. Let's think for a moment about giving thanks. Giving thanks stems from humility. Because a a thankful person is acknowledging that someone else has contributed to them. That, that they're really in the debt of someone else because of their contribution. And ultimately, thankfulness flows back to God because he is the source of all that is good in life. He is the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. James 1, he is the good father who sends good gifts from above. And so when we live thankful lives, we're actually submitting to God's design for our lives. Living in alignment with the way God has created the world and ordered the world brings rest for us because we're not fighting against God's purposes. Thankful people receive from God and bless others. We're going to talk a little bit more about this connection uh, this evening, so if that's a teaser for you, you can think of it that way. But when, when thankful people have the right posture, that leads and that just spills over into harmony with other people. Have you ever met a thankful person who's bitter? I haven't. I, I've never seen someone who was bitter and thankful at the same time. Because, because it's impossible. Bitterness is self-focused. Bitterness is resentful, stewing over the other person's debt to me. It's all about what they owe me. You see, gratitude, thankfulness, is the opposite perspective. It's others-focused. It expresses gratitude to the other person from my debt to them. When we are thankful, it has a shift in our perspective. And that affects not just our mood, but, but it really transforms our relationships. Thankful people are not crabby people. Thankful people are sweet, they're joyful. You want to be around those people. And one of the best ways to smooth out conflict and quench resentment is to give thanks for others. In fact, this is one of the things that I heard years ago, and I can't remember from who, but they said if you're struggling with another believer, start praying and giving thanks for them. And yeah, I'll admit that I've done that through clenched teeth a few times to get the process started. But what ends up happening is that the posturing 
of submitting to God and blessing others starts to change my heart. And it can change yours as well. As we mature into spiritual adulthood, we learn to be content and thankful. And children find the, they have the ability of finding something to complain about in every situation. If you've not worked with children recently, tr- just trust me on this, okay? Uh, I've been in the habit of giving, of taking one of my boys each week out for a donut just to have some time. You know where we go. It's yummies, by the way. It's a free promotional. And I took Knox out, who's our youngest. He's three. And, and he just is a contrarian. I'm, I'm literally bringing my son out one-on-one to get a donut. And he was still unhappy. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? I'm happy right now. I got a donut in front of me. Why aren't you happy? Well, he found something to be, found something to complain about. I'm thirsty. Okay, well, I don't have any water. What about that sink? That's for washing the worker's hands that's behind the counter. I'm thirsty. I don't have a water bottle. I'm thirsty. Okay. (laughs) Even in the best of things, children find, immature people find things to be, to complain about. And I I just wonder how often we do the same thing. We think of ourselves as pretty spiritual, pretty godly, pretty mature and something doesn't go our way and we start complaining. Our first reaction isn't to give thanks. It's not to say, well, Lord, this is a little bit against what I had hoped and it's a little bit not what I expected, but thank you for it. I mean, that's, that's like ra- radical in a way. And yet that's what this verse is calling us to because that's the life that has peace. If God is truly God, then there is always something to be thankful for. And learning that perspective is growing in spiritual maturity. And that brings us into verse 16. Spiritual maturity not, doesn't just come when we learn to give thanks and, and dwell in peace. Spiritual maturity comes when we obey the command of verse 16. To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And this verse is often used as kind of a defense for different styles of worship, and, and, and it's used in a worship discussion because it, it references singing in worship. And we're going to touch on all that next week. In fact, next week's sermon, we're going to go through these same three verses and draw out principles of worship. But what I want us to see today is that Paul is not talking about corporate worship primarily. He's talking about living in harmony with other people. We forgive, we dwell in peace, and we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So what does this mean? Well, the word of Christ is the message about Jesus, which is found and contained in the Bible. Jesus is the living word of God. And so what Paul is calling us to do is have the written word of God dwell in our hearts. And the key command is the word to dwell, to dwell. This is more than just have a roof over your head or be in a physical location. To dwell is to make someone's home there, to be at home. We, we use the word nesting to talk about especially expectant young mothers who are trying to get everything settled for their baby to come. That's the idea, that you've got your favorite comfy chair in your favorite room by your favorite bookshelf and you can just settle into that 
and it, obviously it has a fireplace. And you just settle into that, and you, you're at home there. That's the call for us with the Word of God, to let it be at home in our hearts. And we, we enjoy, Kate and I enjoy, the show Fixer Upper. In fact, we watched several episodes on it on vacation a couple weeks ago. The problem, <laughs> the problem with it is you come back home and you're like, man, I'm going to knock out this wall. I'm going to drop a deck out here. And then <laughs> you start adding the price up and you're like, yeah, maybe we're just going to be uh, right where we are. But what's amazing to me is, is some of these families will come, they'll buy a house that looks perfectly good to me. And I'm like, yeah, I could live there. And they're like, not nah, the kitchen's going to go. We've got to rip out these counters, got to redo all these floors. I'm like, the floors look fine. Well, what are they doing? It's not that things were dilapidated. Maybe things were outdated or things needed to be kind of tidied up. But they're making that space their home. It's them. It's customized to them. What Paul is calling us to do is get the word of Christ so deeply in our hearts that it filters into every part of our life that it's just as much at home in our hearts as we are in our favorite chair. And we don't want to miss the corporate element here either. The word of Christ is at home in our gathering. That's why we spend so much time centered on the Bible. We start our service with a call to worship. We end with a benediction. Because the word of God is central. We preach the Bible. We sing songs that are doctrinally sound. The extent of how the word dwells in us is richly or abundantly. It saturates us. And in a world that saturates us with many, many things, we have to be very intentional to saturate our hearts in the word of God. Now, sometimes we get in our minds that, that the believers at Colossae would read this and then they say, oh, I need, to, I need to double down on my devotions. And they'd go home and pull out their scroll and read it every day for an hour. Well, actually... In that time, very few people had a personal, even single book of the Bible. A scroll was very difficult to come by. And the literacy rates were a lot poorer than they are today here in America. And so when, when we look at a command like this, we really have no excuse. It is easier than ever to access the word of God. And that's a privilege for us. That's incredible. And, the, and yet we don't do that, do we? I found this quote by Charles Spurgeon. And I heard someone joke recently that if you ever want to make your sermon better, just quote Spurgeon a little bit. So here's my token qu quote from Spurgeon. And what it, it's a longer quote, but I, I tried to cut parts of it, but it, he just captures so well the extent to which the word of God should flood our hearts. So listen to this. Spurgeon says, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the worm eat into the leaf and consume it, so also we ought to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our innermost parts. It is idle or, or pointless merely to let the eye glance over the words or recollect the poetry of it or the historical facts of Scripture. But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible 
until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your style is fashioned upon scriptural models and better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. He says, I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Now Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Read anything of John Bunyan's and you will see that it is almost like the reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. We say of him, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He can't speak without quoting a text for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved, end quote. Indeed, his very blood is Bibline. That's not a word we use today. But essentially what Spurgeon is saying is you prick him, you cut him, and he doesn't bleed red, he bleeds Bible. Immersion into the word of God doesn't happen by running through a sprinkler on a hot day or by having water poured over you, but by being immersed like Marilyn was baptized this morning, immersed in the word of God. And the goal, as Spurgeon points out, is not simply to know Bible facts, but to think Bible thoughts to illustrate life with scriptural concepts and characters, to reason scriptural arguments, and ultimately to let the life-giving word of Christ control your life. That's, That's the standard. And oh, how far short we fall, don't we? That we feel good about ourselves if we read for five or ten minutes. And our eyes glance on the page and then we're on to the next thing in life. And yet the word is calling us to be so soaked in the word that when we talk to people and think through our day, we're thinking the very thoughts of the word. Where have we failed? Where have we failed? As I mentioned a moment ago, we're Bible saturated. There are hundreds of translations of the Bible out there. You can access it from anywhere in, in the English as long as you have an internet connection. I have more Bibles on my shelf than some churches do in other parts of the world. And yet the church is probably less biblically saturated than any other time in history. So again, where have we failed? And I think it comes back to a heart attitude that we have not treasured Christ. And if we don't treasure Christ, we don't treasure the word of God. Our attitude towards the word is, is, a, is a measuring stick, is a test case for how much we are treasuring our Lord Jesus Christ. A lack of the word in one's heart reflects the undeniable truth that a treasure resides somewhere else. How then do we treasure Christ and make our hearts a home for the word? Well, there are many applications that we could chase, but I want to get us back into the text because the rest of verse 16 explains how we let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. And as you look at the rest of verse 16, starting with the phrase, in all wisdom, there's a variety of ways to translate this in our English Bibles. But if we look back into the Greek structure, we actually find some clarity. And I, and I, 
I'm not going to bore you with, with um, the actual Greek lettering, but I want to do is show you how the Greek is structured because it's very illuminating. There are two phrases that have the same structure. Both begin with the same preposition that's translated differently in the English. And so this is one of those places where the New King James is very accurate, but you miss the parallelism of reading it this way. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly is the main command. Then there are two phrases. Each phrase begins with a prepositional phrase. In all wisdom and then in thankfulness. Or in grace, as the New King James says. Then there's an action, teaching and admonishing or singing. There's an audience with each to one another or to the Lord. And then there's a further explanation. We, we teach and admonish in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing in our hearts to the Lord. Each phrase parallels one another. Now, I have the third phrase indented because you can see then visually that the second phrase in thankfulness singing in your hearts to the Lord explains further the phrase before it. So let's break this down. How do we let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Well, we teach and admonish one another. We let the word of Christ dwell richly in our church body. And teaching points to the positive instruction. This is what the word says, what we ought to do. Admonishing or warning talks about what we ought not to do. Don't stray from the truth over here. And this is done with all wisdom. And so we have to accurately communicate the word to make you as the hearers wise. We want to be faithful to the text of Scripture. Now, this phrase actually has a strong parallel to Colossians 1.28. Colossians 1.28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Notice the similarities. Warning and admonishing is the same word. Teaching is the same word. In all wisdom is the same phrase. So Paul is returning to an idea that he mentioned earlier, but there's a key difference. What's the key difference? It's who is doing this action. In Colossians 1.28, Paul is saying that his ministry is preaching and warning and teaching. He is the one doing this to build up the hearers. In Colossians 3.16, who is doing the teaching and admonishing? one another. You all do it to one another. That means that every single member of the body of Jesus has a role to play in allowing the word to dwell richly in our midst. Isn't that incredible? It's not just up to the pastor who preaches that Sunday. Every single one of us has an opportunity to participate in furthering the centrality of the word. Well, how do we do that? How, how do we as, as lay people or as people in the pew teach and admonish? It's through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's through what we sing because what we sing proclaims the truth we believe. That's why we want to be so careful to, to pick doctrinally sound texts for our songs. We tell others what we believe as we participate in the singing. And I think that puts a little different spin on why we sing, doesn't it? We don't just sing to hear our own voice or because we enjoy it or because we like this song. 
We actually sing because it's about our ministry to others and our contribution to letting the word dwell in our hearts and in our midst. That also then means that those of us who don't have a great voice don't have to be ashamed of it or embarrassed by it. Because it's, our singing in the church is not about the quality of our singing, it's about the heart of our singing. That's what the last phrase talks about, singing with, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, someone may be thinking, but aren't we supposed to sing and worship the Lord? Yes, the, re- the rest of the verse talks about the Lord is the primary audience of our worship. We don't worship one another. We direct our worship to God, but we can't miss the horizontal element that we are instructing one another when we sing. And how are we to sing? We are to sing with grace in our hearts. This phrase articulates our attitude in worship. And the word grace is translated in many modern versions as gratitude, as gratitude. This is our response to God's generosity towards us. When we really view what God has done and when we receive his grace, we then explode in worship to him. And that worship isn't just contained to the service we're doing right now. It's not just a 10.30 in the morning thing every Sunday. Verse 17 continues this idea and shows us that all of life is worship to God. And whatever you do, Paul says, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And if you step back and look at Colossians 3, 1 through 17, this is the climax. This is the peak of the mountain. Because Jesus has rescued us, because in him we have all we need to grow, and because we've been raised with him, everything we do in this life, in the name of Jesus, brings glory to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, any action you take, any word you say, falls under this command. Everything we do is done in the name of Jesus. And as I was thinking about how best to illustrate this, my mind went back to a lot of like medieval cartoons like you know, King Arthur or, or the Sword and the Stone. And if some dude rides up on a horse and says, Halt in the name of the king, what does everyone else do? <gasps> you know, it's obviously dr- dramatized for the screen. But when that man rides up, he rides in the authority of the king as the king's representative. He has the power of the king at his backing. And whatever he does is as if the king is there doing it. That's what it means to do everything in the name of the Lord. Do everything in the name of Jesus. Because we are his representatives. We have his authority that goes with us to the end of the earth, Matthew 28. We do things in the power of Jesus through his grace. And when we touch and minister to other people, it's the hands and the heart of Jesus physically moving and working in our world today. Everything we do ultimately gives other people an impression of our king. And the verse then concludes with the phrase, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this explains one way that we do all in the name of Jesus. How do you give thanks to God? By doing everything in the name of Jesus. It's the ultimate expression of thankfulness is actually to live for someone else. Not just to say, hey, thanks for what you did for me, but you have done so much for me that I will now live in response for you. How do redeemed people express their gratitude to the Father for saving them? By living for Jesus who gave 
his life for us. So let's return now to the key question that we raised at the beginning. Three commands. What unites these things? It's the word thankfulness. Every verse calls us to practice thankfulness. Thankfulness is the flavor of a Christ-treasuring life. You know, it's interesting that every time we get into the fall season, there's a certain flavor that all of a sudden is back at the top of the list. Fall, the official start of fall was yesterday. And now it's like everybody's talking about pumpkin spice. You can't get away from it. Everywhere you go, pumpkin spice this, pumpkin spice that. I, I just Googled pumpkin spice things. It's in pancakes and donuts, which are very good, by the way. Ice cream and Cliff Bars. It's in noodles and goldfish. Ugh. I don't know about you, but when someone burns a pumpkin spice candle, that's not pleasant. It's like assaulting to my nose. And I could rant about pumpkin spice lattes at Starbucks, but I had one yesterday, so I can't make fun of those. But here's the point. You see where I'm going. Pumpkin spice is the unofficial flavor of fall. But that's how we ought to think about thankfulness in the Christian life. That the aroma of our life, the flavor of our life, is to be lived with thankfulness. Is it ironic to you that the more we have of this world's goods, the less gratitude we tend to have? Ingratitude, unthankfulness, believes that something more is needed to make me happy. That's actually a spiritual problem. Because through our relationship to Jesus, we have everything we need. We have harmony and joy and peace, not only in this world, but in the next. And so if you struggle with thankfulness, the solution isn't just to try harder to find the silver lining in things. Oh, I got to Right, it's November. Uh, I need to, need to be more thankful this year. Well, at least we got football. Okay, you know, be more thankful. The struggle with thankfulness is changed as we view all of life as a response to God's work in us. Because when, when we view life in the name of Jesus from his salvation to us, when he is our guiding principle, his peace becomes our rule, his word becomes our home, and thankfulness becomes our lifestyle. Christians can live thankful lives. Verse 15 shows us that thankfulness fosters peace. Verse 16, thankfulness really steeps or or flavors our worship. We'll get into that next week. And then verse 17, thankfulness empowers Christ-like living. So let me close with this. A lack of thankfulness exposes our failure to truly treasure Christ. A lack of giving thanks exposes our failure to truly treasure Jesus. But an abundance of thanks deepens our enjoyment of him. Uh, I think I have a slide for this, Bob. Can you just click down there for me? Thanksgiving is one of the ways we experience the full pleasure and the full joy of Jesus. You say, "How, how do I treasure Christ more? There it is, thank you. How do I treasure Christ more? How do I, what does that look like practically? It looks like giving thanks. Because thanks is like the gateway that leads us deeper and deeper into an enjoyment of our treasure. And when we refuse to give thanks and when we have 
gratitude only seasonally. It's like we're, we're looking at that doorway to, the, to a deeper fulfillment of the Christian life and saying, no, I don't think I want that. Because God calls us through Christ to give thanks. So I conclude with a simple yet challenging question. Is thanksgiving, is gratitude the flavor of your life? Let's think about that together, shall we? Would you bow with me in prayer? I'll give you a few seconds to respond here as we do business with the Lord about giving thanks. Father, our hearts are so easily discontent. And I confess it's, it's my nature just as much as the next person. And yet, we have such an abundance of reasons to give thanks because of what Christ has done. And if there's someone here today who's never experienced salvation, they've never put their faith in Jesus and felt the peace of God rush into their heart, we pray that today would be the day. And for those of us who have confessed him, we pray that the word would dwell in us richly that peace would rule in us and in our relationships and that all that we do would be done in the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.